land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm Pete Wargent. I'm joined today by one of Australia's top buyers agents, Amy Lunardi. A- Amy, welcome. Great to have you on as always. Thanks, Pete. Good to have good to be here. <laughs> yes. Um, what have you been working on this week, Amy? I guess you've been getting a bit busier in uh, the last uh, couple of months. Uh, what's what's been happening out there in the housing yeah. market? Yeah. Gosh, I've been I've been really busy recently. I've had a lot more inquiry come through from buyers. I've had a lot of buyers who have been sitting on the fence for some time, and, and just keeping an eye on the market. And then have, for whatever reason, just now got that confidence to say, well, what am I, what am I waiting for? You know, that nothing's really changing. Stock levels aren't improving too much. Rates now, well, we just heard, you know, very recently, just another pause. So buyers are getting a little bit more confidence to come back in. So yes, I have been quite busy. Pete is the same, um, is the same for you with, with your buyer's agency. In Brisbane, yes, I think we've had a lot of people inquire over the past really three or four months, but uh, just not quite pulling the trigger. So I think interest rates on hold for a second month uh, that was announced today on the day of recording. And I think a lot of people have just been waiting for some kind of indication that interest rates are at the peak or close to the peak. And we did take another step closer to that today. So I think that will actually get some people taking action. I think if you're taking a 10 or 15 year view on an investment, uh, waiting an extra week or two, it's a bit nonsensical because you'll probably end up competing with more buyers anyway. Um, So uh, something topical, uh, Amy, because today we're going to talk about property negotiations, something that you do day in and day out. So it'd be great to tap into some of your insights and experiences and case studies. So uh, uh, let's rip into it, shall we? So um, well, let's first start with the simple question. What What is different about a property negotiation? I, I guess um, I remember doing uh, when I did my sort of uh, company law exams years ago, and they said, if you go into a shop, um, you know, there's it's almost like an invitation to treat, but we basically just pay the price. You know, when we go into a shop, very few people actually bother to negotiate on a price, but it's different in property. There's an expectation 
on a property is listed with a guide price, um, it's almost sort of implied there that there will be a negotiation between buyer and seller. Um, so I guess um, that sets us up for a slightly different uh, set of circumstances. Oh, gosh, absolutely. There's so many different variable variables involved in a property negotiation. And I think one of the key reasons why it's so different to any other negotiation, so not like going out and buying a car and you haggle a little bit or you're at a market overseas and you're bartering or even a business negotiation, is because with property, there's, there's so much emotion involved in many instances, especially with home buyers. And you know, with investors, a little bit different, but sometimes investors can get a little bit emotional. But also beyond that and beyond the emotions, because emotions can cloud judgment and emotions can cloud people's rational decision making when they're negotiating. Um, but beyond that, there are also so many different parties involved in a property negotiation. There is the purchaser and then there's the seller or the vendor. But there are also other people like the real estate agent and there is the vendor solicitor, the buyer's solicitor, the vendor's family, the buyer's family, sometimes a buyer's agent, sometimes a vendor advocate as well. And they can in some situations muddy the water a little bit. And also because you've got a real estate agent acting as the middleman in pretty much all situations, you're not de dealing direct with that vendor. You're dealing directly with an agent who can sometimes make things easier for you or sometimes can actually make things harder for you. So it is important to understand that uh, property negotiations are a little bit different to what maybe you have experienced previously in other negotiations. And I've actually had clients before who I've worked with and they've said, I do, I, I negotiate for a living. I negotiate in my business all of the time. Um, but then when it came to property negotiations, they really, they really struggled and that's why they got me on board. Completely. And I think sometimes the fact that you're dealing with much bigger numbers can be in itself uh, can be quite intimidating. I remember even when I was a kid, I remember uh, mum and dad saying, you know, we bought a home for, you know, back in those days, it was about £4,000. And then later on, you know, they bought one for £30,000. And yet, <laughs> day to day, they seem to be dealing with numbers that were sort of uh, not quite shillings and uh, uh, sort of old money, but it wasn't far off. You know, day to day, they were dealing with such small numbers, it seemed. But when it comes to buying a house, the numbers were up and down, you know, materially much, much larger. Um, so I think the, there's probably a few different situations in which you would need to negotiate. I mean, most often, if you're buying a new property, there's a sticker price, and I guess most of the time people pay it. I do remember in 2009, there was quite a lot of scope for negotiating on new properties where the valuations were coming in low. But that's probably more of an exception rather than the rule. So most often, I guess, it's either private treaty sales or sometimes if an auction passes in, there might be a post-auction negotiation. So I guess those would be the normal situations you would come across where there's a property listed for sale. In some states, you get a guide price and in other states, um, you don't get any guidance at all. So I suppose those are the that would be the most common situation you would face. Yeah, exactly right. So in Australia, we've got two methods of sale, which is either an auction or a private sale. And with an auction, if you're going to auction and you're bidding on auction day, that's not that's not a negotiation. That's rocking up and you've got some terms and conditions usually pre-arranged and then it's the highest bidder that buys that property. 
But still with an auction property, in some situations, there may be a negotiation. Like you said, Pete, if the property passes in. So what that means is that bidding hasn't reached the vendor's reserve price. And therefore, that property is then passed in and the highest bidder, if there was a bidder, is invited to negotiate afterwards. And I find that a lot of buyers don't plan ahead for that negotiation. It is a very high pressure situation where the agent might, you know, you might do it out the front or they might invite you inside. And some agents will put a lot of pressure on you and say, we've got 10 minutes to negotiate. You pay this price or, you know, I'm going to my next auction. Other other agents are, um, you know, a lot easier to deal with and might hold your hand a little bit more. But a lot of buyers don't prepare for that. And um, then they struggle with what they're actually going to say. But also if you're wanting to sometimes buy or put an offer in prior to auction, that is a negotiation as well because to buy a property prior to auction, you actually need to come to an agreement in terms of price and terms, et cetera. So in an auction, you could find yourself in a need to negotiate, but with a private sale, absolutely. And with a private sale, you have to think of it as like two parts of the process. The first part is being you or someone else negotiating with the agent to get to a point where the vendor is happy to sell that property. We call that an acceptable offer, price and terms. And then after that is dealing with other buyers if there's other competition. But to get to part two, you have to deal with part one, which is that negotiation phase. And in this episode, you know, there is, I've, I've negotiated, I don't even know how many negotiations I've, I've been involved in thousands and thousands and thousands. And there is no one set method or manner to say, this is exactly how you negotiate a transaction. You have to actually use your intuition to a certain extent. And we'll go through some tips and tricks and, you know, a bit of guidance in this episode. But it is a lot of um, sort of reading the situation and using a bit of emotional intelligence as well, Um, especially if that situation is a little bit more complex as other buyers, as, you know, a private sale and everyone's on different terms. They can be a bit bit complicated. So what I'm hearing then is, in a sense, there's no such thing as a normal negotiation because you might have a deceased estate with kids squabbling over the results or you might have a separation where the parties want a, a quick sale or you might have a retiree who's downsizing and in no rush to sell. Um, so I suppose it, it's really a question of sizing up uh, what type of negotiation you're going into uh, before, um, you know, before you actually even kick off. Yeah, and the way to do that is to ask as many questions as you can until you understand exactly what the situation is and exactly how that agent is going to handle the negotiation. And sometimes I'll have real estate agents jokingly say to me, Amy, you ask a lot of questions, (laughs) but you have to because before you submit your initial offer um, or before you submit your offer in general, you need to know things like, well, um, what are the timeframes involved? Is the vendor happy to take offers now? Do they need to have a couple of opens? Are they receptive to being negotiable now? Or, you know, does the agent feel like they need a couple of weeks to get feedback? Once they get an acceptable offer, how are they going to handle that? How long are they going to give other buyers to contest? How are they going to deal with unconditional versus conditional offers? And I ask all of these questions so that I can then say, okay, I understand when things have to happen and how they have to happen. And then that will frame my strategy. So that's the key thing here. Ask as many questions so that you know exactly um, 
what you're going to do. And don't feel like bad about asking these questions. Don't feel like you're going to look like an idiot or anything like that. You have to know. You don't want to miss out on a property just because you didn't understand the process. Some agents would be more helpful than others, I guess. But um, as you said, the real estate agent is really the conduit for most of this information that you're trying to uncover. And um, I guess having some familiarity with the local real estate agents can only help, which is, I guess, where you come in as a buyer's agent. Um, You mentioned a couple of times there, Amy, uh, conditions, making conditional offers or unconditional offers. And I suppose there's a kind of this assumption when it comes to negotiation that it's all about price. And it, it kind of makes sense. And there's, you know, this whole book's been written on this, you know, never leave any anything on the table for the, the person you're negotiating with and get the best, you know, best price you can. But there's more to a property negotiation than simply the price. Um, and uh, as you said, there can be sometimes conditions attached to an offer that you make and I guess there's there's some scope there for being creative then in, in terms of getting a, a deal across the line. Oh absolutely and we had an episode not long ago Pete where we spoke about uh, dealing with real estate agents and um, how to how to communicate with them and and really what you're trying to uncover through speaking to the agent at the start is what the vendor's motivation really is and I don't really love the question, you know, why is the vendor selling? I know that it sounds uh, like something you should ask, but it's kind of the same as if the agent said to you, Pete, why are you buying? I mean, it's not really any of their business. And if, you know, if the vendor is selling because of, um, you know, they're really unwell or they hate the neighbor or whatever, that does shouldn't really influence your decision to purchase if um, the vendor has bought, there's other ways to uncover that kind of motivation. You say, you know, is there a particular settlement time frame the vendor needs? And if they say, oh, it's the 11th of September, well, that would imply that maybe they've bought. But during this process at the very beginning, I always like to ask the question um, to the real estate agent, is there anything aside from price which can make my offer more appealing? So in general, the less conditions you have in the contract, the better. That being said, you always want to protect yourself, right, Pete? If you need subject to finance or if you haven't got your building inspection yet and you don't want to get that up front, then obviously protect yourself. But if that real estate agent receives an unconditional offer and then they receive a conditional offer, say you're subject to finance or subject to building inspection and they're a similar price, well, of course, they're going to consider the unconditional one. That has less risk to the vendor. But I've seen many instances where even if that conditional offer is significantly higher, and we might be talking about five, 10 grand, I have seen up to $30,000 price difference where the vendor valued certainty. So they took an offer which was 30 grand less because it had less conditions. So first of all, making your offer as appealing as possible with with less conditions is helpful in the right circumstances. Um, But then other things, other, other things like I've just done one where we had what's called a floating settlement. So what that was is that we we gave the vendor the right to bring settlement forward at their own discretion if they purchased a property sooner than they expected. So they had this, this flexible settlement anywhere between 30 and 150 days. That was fine by us because they just had to give us 30 days notice. We were okay with that. And for them, they were like, this is amazing. And they that really helped get our offer across the line and that price was less than they were hoping for, but they valued the accommodation security more. 
That makes a lot of sense. I think um, in my experience, Amy, part of the the journey of uh, getting better in property and property investing is actually learning along the way. And there's some trial and error involved. And I've often found that I've learned more from mistakes than things that went well, you know, because you, you're almost forced to reconsider. Um, and there's a, there's a whole range of mistakes you could make in a negotiation. Um, look, it's a bit embarrassing, but let me start with a personal example because uh, <laughs> what the hell? I'm sure I've talked about it somewhere else anyway. Um, but so uh, just uh, rewinding the clock to when I was a youngster, hard to imagine, I know, with all the gray hairs today. But I bought a property in Bondi. Uh, my budget was $500,000 on the nose. Um, and I think at the time there was some kind of... Um, there was some kind of stamp duty exemption or something or other for properties up to the 500k limit. Anyway, I found a property that was on the market at 540. It was reduced to 500. And being a, you know, I'm somebody who worked in financial services. So in theory, I should know what I'm doing, at least to some <laughs> degree. Uh, but in the end, I just paid the 500,000. And I suppose knowing what I know now, look, I could have picked it up for 495 or who knows, maybe even, um, you know, 492, 500. But I mean, there was a few different things there. So firstly, uh, well, laziness is probably a, a, a first mistake. Uh, but I, I think as well, maybe there's a couple of other things. I, I probably didn't have the self-confidence to negotiate. That would be one thing, uh, being younger and inexperienced. I, I think I made some assumptions about what the vendor would accept and possibly could have done more market research in terms of recent sales. Um, probably maybe getting a bit emotional, that sort of sense of, if I don't buy this one, there'll never be a property as good again, even though they come up all the time. And um, I think as well, I didn't want to offend the vendor by making a low offer of say, you know, 485 or 490, whereas actually that is a big part of making a negotiation, but obviously you don't want to take that too far and make a ridiculously low offer. Um, so look, there's a few things that if I was doing it today, I'd be more dispassionate. I'd do more market research. I'd have more self-confidence to go in with a strong uh, but lower offer and I'd negotiate harder and I'd probably just take the emotions out of the equation a bit more. Um, so look, that's just well, a that personal was an investment example. And that was an investment property, right, Pete? Well, I we lived in it. So part okay. of what we did over the years is that we, we bought properties, we lived in them for a year and renovated and then moved on. And look, there's, there's all different ways to do your property journey. Um, that's what we did in Sydney. We did that a few times where we, we bought the place, lived in it for a year, renovated, and then it became a rental. And, you know, I know people say, you know, uh, there's different ways to do this and you shouldn't uh, confuse living in a property with the uh, investment property. But, you know, we just figured as young professionals, that was the market we understood. And if we liked an area, then most likely other people would too. And we sort of followed that through in the inner West as well. So look, there's some mistakes from my journey, but so uh, what kind of things do you see, Amy, in terms of uh, people making negotiation mistakes? Yeah. So, I mean, with um, letting emotion come into play, I often hear people say, um, don't get emotional when you're buying a property. Don't let emotions, you know, guide you too much. And I kind of, I mean, I agree to a certain extent, you should never let them like totally override all of your rational decision-making. Um, and especially if you're buying an investment property, it really should be around the numbers. But when you're buying a home, you can let them come into play to a certain extent. But I do recommend before you commence negotiations, 
to figure out and do all of your due diligence, put yourself in a position where you understand the market value of that property, but also your personal value. And Pete, in a previous episode, we'd actually discussed on how to appraise a property and how to figure out your personal value. Do that before you start negotiating because once you get into the thick of negotiations, especially if things aren't going how you envisage they would and, and that happens sometimes or maybe the agent's being frustrating or the vendor's not playing ball, your emotions can actually override your decision-making at that point in time because you start to get frustrated. And I've had situations in the past where clients have said, oh, well, they're not doing this, so I'm not going to increase my offer. And I've said to them, but it's still well below what we're prepared to pay. And they let their ego, I guess, overrule, you know, the, the next steps. And and it, it's, um, yeah, I mean, we in those situations, I've always been that sort of rational person in the middle saying, okay, well, let's focus on this and let's focus on that. And we figured it out. But if you don't have a buyer's advocate doing that for you, just bear in mind that doing that research prior, always come back to that. Because sometimes during a negotiation, um, things don't go as planned. And I had someone recently say to me, oh, well, we've come up 10 grand on price. They should come down 10 grand. Or this is just going to end up, we're all just going to meet in the middle. That's absolutely not the case. There's no such thing as a, this is exactly how a negotiation needs to happen. And, you know, I've had situations where we've put an offer in before and we've not budged. We haven't gone up any further or other situations where a vendor's not budged, or we have gone up and down by 10 grand each time. It really, really depends. So the key thing here is just to not make any assumptions going into that negotiation and doing your research prior. Also, bear in mind that things can change during a negotiation. And an example of this is that the vendor's position changes. You know, maybe their friend or family member has gotten in their ear and told them they shouldn't be selling for that price or maybe you see another property come up online that influences how much you're prepared to pay. So just understand that sometimes negotiations can take time and the vendor's position can change. And I had a situation recently where a property passed in at auction and we spent a good 10 days negotiating on that property and almost get to, got to a point where we were ready to sign a contract and the vendor said, I've decided not to sell anymore. And that was heartbreaking. So just just keep that in the back of the mind, your mind when you're doing all of this. Um, and I will briefly mention, Pete, when we you mentioned earlier about lowball offers. So <laughs> I guess everyone has a different definition of what a lowball offer is. You know, some people might think, oh, it's you know slightly under the range or the asking price. But some people will come forward and put forward a lowball offer to the point where it's they know it's never going to be accepted. But they just think, oh, you know, we'll just see what happens. Um, if that property has been on the market for a really long time and the vendor is super motivated, well, in that case, like a, a, a lowball offer may be appropriate. But in other situations, you can actually achieve the opposite outcome, which is the agent and vendor thinking that you're a time waster, offending them in some situations and just not getting any traction. I would rather come forward with a reasonable offer, even if it is a bit lower, and get a counter offer than just get a flat out, you're wasting our time. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> totally, wasn't it? I think there was one of those books years ago. Now, it might have been a Kiyosaki one or something where it said, it, no, I'm going to get the numbers completely wrong, but it was something <laughs> along these lines. Like you inspect 300 properties and you make uh, ridiculously low offers on 50 of them, <laughs> you know, 49 people 
or tell you to go stuff uh, yourself and then you, you might get one you know across the line yeah the thing is i, I even That's as the i was worst reading that advice i've ever <laughs> i'm glad you said that because my when i read it i mean firstly being a polite englishman i would never be so rude to waste people's time by making ridiculous offers on properties i'm not really that interested in you know sounds like a waste of your own time as well yeah completely and <laughs> I, I suppose the the theory is you know you're trying to buy a dollar for 50 cents but in my experience of property people generally don't give properties away for less than they're worth uh, yes there's sometimes there's forced sales but you don't you don't want to take advantage of people but in any case i would always try and focus on quality rather than quantity and you're just risking pissing people off left right and center by taking an approach like that i, I think uh, one of the psychological biases there amy you've alluded to is that concept of anchoring and um i mean mm -hmm. just to go back to for example that property i mentioned in bondi listed at 540 reduced to 500 in, but in my head well it's been reduced from 540 but i think this is the thing we somehow get psychologically anchored to certain prices um even though the property was probably never worth 540 you know so and that, that can be a, an error and people do it as well um when uh, choosing whether to buy or sell you know people become very anchored to the price they paid for a property but the reality is you've got to deal with the current market as it is today and not try and get too anchored about what's gone before or where the negotiation started um Oh, just absolutely. Be because a, you know, just because a vendor lists a property at a million bucks doesn't mean it's worth that. Uh, now, um, I think, that, yes, you're right. One of the things I see all of the time in negotiations is ego getting in the way of dispassionate or unemotional decisions. And, you know, people get very offended by offers that are, you know, lower than what they want or, you know, sometimes if the other party is not coming to the table. I think the thing is in a negotiation, there's two parties. There's a buyer and a seller with an agent in the middle. And I think you really, you've got to try and work with the real estate agent rather than against them. And to try to, yes, just to leave the ego out of the conversation. So many negotiations just fall over because people dig their heels in and um, they annoy the real estate agent or the vendor. And the, the whole thing just goes nowhere because people have become so either anchored to a price or they've just got they've, they've let their ego get too much involved in the, the negotiation oh absolutely and i see this quite often i'm negotiating on on a property at the moment where the buyer there's another buyer involved and that the buyer and the vendor have come to a stalemate because the buyer um, the property passed in and the buyer is basically saying you know well there's no one else around and you should take my offer and you know the property is not worth X and all of these things to the point where they've actually kind of offended the vendor. And the agents told me all of this because we've now come in and we're now negotiating. And this other buyers thought, oh my gosh, like I've, uh, I've left this, I've left this too late. And the vendor actually doesn't really want to deal with them anymore. And they're really, really starting to engage with us. And even though it doesn't sound like that's what should happen, the agent should engage with everyone and their goal is to get the highest price coming back to that whole thing around there are emotions involved and there's a vendor here and um, there's also an agent who wants to get a transaction done and sometimes they'll go down the path of least resistance. So quite often when I'm negotiating with a real estate agent, I'll ask them for sort of um, kind of like guidance and, you know, I know it's really hard. Um, I'm, I do this every every day for a job and as a as a regular buyer listening to this, you might think, oh, I don't know if I feel confident doing this, but I often say to an agent, okay, well, here's what I'm thinking in terms of an offer or in terms of a price. 
based on your experience with this vendor so far um, and knowing their personality and knowing how, you, you know, you're going to deal with them, um, should we come in with a lower offer so you can massage it and, and work on it a little bit and then we can, you know, drip it upwards? Or do you think they're the kind of vendors who are really black and white and if we came in any lower, it would be counterproductive? And I sort of work with them to then formulate that offer and put them in the driver's seat. I'm still in control. Um, I know where I need to be. And then through those conversations, we can then figure out where we're going to start with that offer process. If it's a best and highest offer process where you only get one shot to put the offer forward, again, you're working with the agent to understand how to make your offer as appealing as possible. In some situations, like if you have worked with that agent for a bit and you've been really nice to them and really good to deal with, they might give you a bit of a, a hint or a bit of a nudge as to where you need to be or what you need to do versus another buyer, which, um, you know, maybe they're less inclined to want to help. Um, so, yeah, all of all of these things I think are really beneficial um, coming back to, yeah, working with the agent rather than, than working against them. I think, Amy, I mean, you've spent so many years in the industry and you could probably – uh, you could probably write an entire book on all of the different um, sort of tactics you could use and the, the psychology of negotiation. I think for somebody who's opting to do it themselves and they're less experienced, I mean, there's some real basic things that they can do um, to minimize the risk and to get the best outcome. So I'll just run through a few of the sort of top uh, recommendations or tips. I mean, firstly, preparation. I think if you can, um, <clears throat> what they say, uh, sort of clear the decks, you know, be in the best possible position to negotiate. So you're not relying on you know, the sale of a property or your mortgage pre-approval. So firstly, just be in a strong position to actually negotiate because that, I mean, in itself puts you in the best possible stead. Secondly, I think market research is a lot easier now than it used to be to get um, details on comparable sales, uh, you know, what's been happening in the market. I mean, if you know what's going on, you're much more confident going into a negotiation if you're able to do the due diligence and the market research, because that way you're not going to get so swayed uh, by you know uh, properties that are potentially look they look like they might be over budget or you think they're overpriced. If you've got a strong sense of what's happening in the market, that really helps your confidence in a negotiation. I think and you're that's already... also really helpful to use, Pete, when you're speaking to a real estate agent to get a gauge on the vendor's expectations or the price range on that property. And you say, okay, well, I know that a similar property around the corner, um, you know, it had the same accommodation, it sold for X price. Is that something you've factored in? Or where did you get this price from? Sometimes I'll see a property and it's for sale and it's it's got a price like well above where I think it should sit. And I'll say to the agent, what's the vendor basing this on? Are they basing this on a particular sale that I'm unaware of? Sometimes the agent will say to me, oh, they just, you know, they're not that motivated or they, um, you know, they bought the property and they paid too much for whatever reason. And you can use those comparable sales to have those conversations and that can help uncover the vendor's position and the vendor's motivation. It can also just demonstrate that you are a, an educated buyer and you can just get a little bit more traction in the in the discussions with the agent if you can rattle off other sales. Absolutely. I think that, yes, that's something we've touched on a couple of times is understanding what does the seller actually want and what do they need out of the process. Yes, the sales price is usually the most important factor, but it's not always. Sometimes people want a quick settlement or you know, sometimes there might be other conditions that a, a vendor is looking for and communicating with the real estate agent is the best way to uncover uh, those wants and needs. 
I think um, another factor which we've kind of touched on, but um, is to just be really clear when you're making an offer. Um, you know, you don't, you don't want to be sort of making half-assed uh, verbal offers. If you're going to really make an offer to buy a property, um, you know, very often the, the most effective way to go about it might be a written offer that the, the agent can then present uh, formally to the vendor, like it depends on the negotiation. And sometimes, um, depending on the state of the market, if you can make the offer maybe time-bound, so you can say that this offer is on the table for 24 or 48 hours, um, to try and put some kind of pressure back on uh, the vendor to accept the offer or come back with a counter-offer. Is that the sort of thing that you would normally do, Amy? I only I use timestamps sparingly. And the reason is because if you have no intention of actually withdrawing your offer by that date, if that timeline comes and goes, you will you need to decide are you actually going to withdraw your offer? Or in which case the agent might call you and say, Oh, hey, is is that offer still on the table? And you say yes. And then you've lost your negotiation credibility because what you've said you actually haven't enforced. I will use implied time pressures. So I will use things like, hey, I really want to put another offer on this property. I need to actually know within 48 hours because that other property is going to receive an offer. Like I'll use implied time pressures, or I will use actual um, uh, uh, times and dates in the contract in situations where I'm actually going to withdraw it and put an offer in on something else or I'm going to auction for another property and it puts a lot of pressure on. I'll also then use them sometimes with in discussions with the agent where I say, do you think that this could be an effective tool if they've already said to me the vendors are a little bit indecisive or you know they need a little bit of a nudge? But sometimes a vendor actually needs time. They might need time to speak to a family member or speak to their solicitor or speak to you know, their spouse and in which case a timestamp can actually have that uh, an un- unintended impact of putting too much pressure on them and then they're not able to come back to you within that time period. So, yes, like they they have their time in place, but I do use them sparingly. Depends on the circumstances, I suppose, and if uh, maybe a bit different for, a, for an investor as compared to a home buyer. It sounds um, it's a bit like parenting. You don't want to make an idle threat. Heather always says to me, um my wife when I, I say to the kids you know watch it or you get a clip around the ear and she said there's no point in saying that because the kids know that you're not going to follow through with it so it's an idle threat <laughs> well, my, so well, my sister-in-law she whenever I'm at her house she's like I'm going to throw the iPads in the bin and I'm like but you're not <laughs> yeah you've got to be prepared to follow call, through <laughs> the kids call the bluff actually Pete speaking of bluffing this is something which I have buyers ask me all the time they say how do I know the real estate agent isn't bluffing they've told me they've got this offer or how do we know that they're just not full of you know you know what and my answer is well in a private sale the reality is you don't know if they're bluffing or not there's no transparency unlike an auction where you're all bidding on the street and you can see each other so the key thing to know is like you've there's always going to be a little bit of an element of doubt um but once the property Once there's a situation where the agent has received an acceptable offer from someone, for example, they call you and say, hey, we've got an offer. This property is going to sell. You need to actually let me know what what you're going to do. They have less incentive to bluff in those situations because when they have an acceptable offer from another, another buyer and they're basically giving an opportunity to contest, they don't actually have a lot of incentive. They've actually almost got zero incentive to bluff. 
because if they don't get any higher offers, that property is going to sell to someone else. Um, so if they, um, and then if they are bluffing and they, you know, they're telling you I've got an offer of say 740 and you're like, oh, well, I don't, I'm not above that. I'm not going to beat that. Um, and they don't actually have another offer. Well, then they've got zero offers on the table. So they're just the incentive once that property is hit reserve or they've got an acceptable offer is just quite low versus if they're trying to fish for offers just to get, you know, something started. You could always say things like, well, you know, that other offer is an acceptable offer. Is the vendor happy to take that? And in which case they might say, oh, no, we're, we're still negotiating. Um, and then you can ask questions like what are the terms? What are their conditions? Just to get a bit more insight. And in some situations I've, you know, called a bluff and I've thought, oh, my gut is not right here. Um, but you need to assess your risks in those situations. And if you are interested in that property and it's going to potentially sell for a price you're willing to pay and you think they're bluffing and you don't put an offer in, you just need to understand that that property could sell. You need to decide if that is worth the risk because at the end of the day, there is not a lot of transparency here, unfortunately. I think the uh, buyer's agent, Lisa Parker, shared a meme that says something along the lines of uh, it's a psychologist um, talking to a a patient and saying, you know, these these other offers are they in the room with us now? Are they, <laughs> I, the implication being that whenever you go to an open home, um, the the agent will always imply there's lots of interest. We've got offers coming in. You know, that's their part of their job to try and create a sense of urgency. But you know, sometimes in a very quiet market, when you're the only person that's an open home. <laughs> And the agent's having a smoke out on the balcony. And they say, oh, yeah, we've got some offers <laughs> coming in. I mean, sometimes it can stretch the bounds of credibility. And as you said, sometimes just asking questions can uncover whether they've got serious offers coming in or serious buyers. I think um, I think just to uh, to wrap up on a couple of those points, Amy, yeah, I think the negotiation is a two-way process. And I think sometimes people can let a, a really good or potentially attractive deal fall over just for the sake of a really minor point. And you know, sometimes you've got to see the bigger picture, you know, if a deal's worth doing and, you know, you've got to give and take and don't let it fall over for the sake of a really trivial issue or minor point, like on the I settlement do. date or something, because it can happen. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's a good point, Pete. I do see that happen now and again, especially because, you know, when you get a contract review, sometimes your legal review will suggest things like changing some conditions. And I always like to uncover if any of those are deal breakers or nice to changes, because some of those might be just, you know, save a couple of hundred dollars here and there on some fees. And I've had buyers that just go go to town and they say, I don't want to put this offer in until that condition's removed. My solicitor says to remove this. But then once we actually um, work through it, we're like, we're talking about $250 here. Is it worth, you know, building a, a, a what's it um making a mountain out of a molehill for this let's focus on the bigger picture so yes I do see that quite often um but I also like if I'm thinking about one final tip to to summarize this episode as well Pete if you're not a professional negotiator which most most people aren't <laughs> the one important thing just to bear in mind is just to give yourself um, time and space quite often a real estate agent will put you on the spot and ask you questions face-to-face -face or on the phone or in a passing situation. And if you're feeling really nervous and stressed, sometimes you can say things that you don't mean to say or you haven't put enough thought into it and it's hard to backtrack from there. So always say something like, let me just have a chat to my partner, I'll come back to you. Let me call my broker, I'll come back to you. Can I just take a moment, I'll call you back or I'll step outside or I'll do whatever. 
so that you don't say anything hastily and you give yourself a moment to collect yourself and then go back to that agent. But just bear in mind as well that there is such thing as too much time, kind of like when you first start dating someone and you, you know, you think you shouldn't text them back straight away and you wait a couple of days and then they think you're not interested <laughs> because things can change. Um, like that vendor I spoke about earlier who changed their mind about selling. So there is a fine line there, but yeah, don't put yourself under too much stress. Don't want to be uh, <coughs> guilty of ghosting on the uh, the transaction. Yeah, I think you're right. I think <laughs> they often say, don't they, that buying property or you know, moving home or changing jobs. These are some of the more stressful life events that you go through. I might just uh, add in there having kids as well, probably for those of us who are parents. Um, so I think, yes, it can become all too easy to get very emotionally fired up or too involved in a transaction. And so let's try to be rational, try to keep a bit of a cool head. And um, a lot of things, people get very stressed out by this kind of stuff. And they think that... Um, they're making terminal mistakes or there'll never be another property or, you know, especially in a competitive market, you don't want to get sort of over excited or carried away and, um, you know, do something that you might regret later on. So try and keep a cool head and try and keep the emotions um, at least in check or in balance. You can't remove them completely, as Amy said. Um, so, Amy, I guess we could chat all day about some of our negotiation experiences, but hopefully that gives people a good flavor if people want to uh, find out a bit more or if they've got any other questions about negotiation where should they go to for more <laughs> so you can find me and my buyers advocacy business at amylenardi.com.au and i also have an online course at the moment specifically for victorian home buyers i've actually got an entire module in there about negotiating pete um that's at the first home guidebook.com.au Perfect. And you can catch me on my daily blog, Pete Wargent Blogspot or at Pete Wargent on Twitter. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the Rask podcast on your favorite podcast players. And in fact, uh, also on YouTube these days, so you can watch us uh, chatting away. And as always, do send us in your property questions by the link in the show notes, or even if you just want to say good day and give us some feedback, uh, please do. So uh, thanks very much, Amy. I think um, it's time for me to go and uh, negotiate a cup of coffee if I can convince uh, Heather to <laughs> flick the kettle on. So, uh, probably... oh, we've got to negotiate in all aspects of our life, don't we, Pete? <laughs> I'll probably be on the losing end of that transaction, but we'll give it a go. And uh, uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you next time. See you, Pete. Cheers, see ya. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core in a satellite, 
active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.